Let us come to God's word. Tonight's passage is from Genesis 1 and reading until Genesis 2 verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swam according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, and created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. This is the word of God. Thank you, Candice, for reading our passage for us this evening. And for those of you who I haven't met, my name's Will. As you might have picked up, we're starting a new series in the book of Genesis, going right back to the beginning. So it'd be really helpful if you could keep your Bibles open. And if you'd find it helpful, there's a, a handout which should have been inserted into the Bible that you received as you came in. But before we begin, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to gather together as a church family. We thank you for your word and that your spirit presses it for us into our hearts. We pray that you would help us not to harden our hearts to your voice but this evening that we would grow as we listen to you. Amen. 
Now, whether it's a director, an author, a playwright, someone writing something for television, they all want to grab our attention. So they use their opening words, the opening scene, to hook us into what's happening. They draw us into the story. They get us interested in what's happening. In fact, often opening lines... Well, they can be momentous lines. Well, no less so for Genesis 1, as Candice just read for us. These lines don't just open a book of Genesis in a momentous way, but in many ways, they open for us the whole of the Bible story. And in them, as you probably saw, we get an overview of the whole of creation from start to finish. And I imagine these words are quite familiar to us. Whether that's whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not. They're words that in our society have been often quoted, hotly debated, and that they've left their impression upon us. Perhaps this is most famously shown by Apollo 8. That as the first time that anyone in human history had ever seen the earth rise over the horizon of the moon, the people were so amazed by what they saw that it led them to read these words. That as they were broadcast from space on Christmas Eve all those years ago, well, they read for us Genesis chapter 1. So moved by what they saw, so moved by God's creation, they couldn't help read about the Creator. And it's understandable why Genesis 1, and we'll see all the way through to Genesis 4, grab our attention. Because they speak about some of the most fundamental truths on the planet. They speak about things which get right to the heart, what it means to be human, what it means to live in this world. And that we're going to see as we go through them, we're going to see a few things that are really important for Christians that we believe We're going to see that God made the world. We're going to see that God made it good. That he gave humans a special place in it. But we're also going to see that, sadly, that this relationship was ruptured and that the perfection of God's creation was ruined through our sin. We'll get the chance to grapple with these and other issues as we go through these chapters. And for all of us, but especially for those of you who wouldn't call yourself a Christian here, I want to assure you that these chapters aren't going to ask us to park our brain at the door and make us think that we have to escape reality or ignore it to understand them. But hopefully you will see that actually these chapters explain reality better than anything else can. That explains why the world is the way it is today. How on the one hand... Well, the world looks so ordered and wonderful. It's beautifully made, breathtakingly stunning. I'm sure that at some point in our lives, we've all been blown away by that wonderful sunset, or we've marveled at the intricacy and the detail of living things. This world is able to amaze us. But on the other hand... These chapters will explain why such a wonderfully ordered world can also be so chaotic 
and disordered. How a world that can amaze us can also leave us in tears because it does not seem to be as it ought to be. There's something not quite right at the heart of our world. And that although these, these chapters were written thousands of years ago, in a different language, in a different culture, in a different part of the globe, that actually they explain perfectly how, we, how the world got to what we see it as today. But as we come to these chapters, and before we dive in, it's probably good for us to acknowledge that we'll often come to these chapters with some of our own questions. Perhaps we've got questions about the processes and the mechanisms of creation, or about the status and role of the human race. Or maybe we have questions about the nature or the origin of sin. And whilst these chapters will help us think through these and many other issues, and will hopefully provide some clarity to our questions, first and foremost, the Bible introduces us to God. That's why this evening, we're just looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because that sets the agenda for where the rest of this section is going. That before we can learn about anything else, we need to first be introduced to God. It reads right there in the first line, in the beginning, God. We need to learn about him before we can learn about the rest. So that's why we're slowing down tonight, just to focus on this first verse. And we're going to see in this verse two key truths about God. So firstly, we're going to see that God is eternal. And secondly, we're going to see that God alone is the creator. We're going to slow down and learn about what God is like so that we can understand the rest of the Bible story. For example, let's imagine Jesus' ministry. Let's think about that. Well, how can we understand Jesus' ministry on earth, why he came and suffered and died, why he went to the cross? How are we going to understand that if we don't first understand who God is and what he did in the beginning? If we don't understand that God made the world and that it belongs to him, well, then how can we understand why he would redeem the world? If he wasn't the creator, why would he be the redeemer? It's also going to help us to appreciate Jesus' ministry more, to realize that someone so amazing as the almighty, eternal creator God, although he'd stoop down to become like us and face death, We're going to take time to learn about God to help us understand not only Genesis, but all of the Bible. So let's dive into the passage. And it'd be great if you keep your Bible open. I do promise there'll be a few other places we'll turn later on. But we're going to start off in verse 1, looking at in the beginning, God, to see that God is eternal. This verse right at the start of the Bible, well, it clearly asserts for us that there actually is a God, that there is someone who existed long ago 
before anything we can see was created, before anything was made, who is unlike the rest of creation. Because all the way back in the beginning, before creation, God, there was a God, he was there, he wasn't made, but he was there in the beginning. Now, if you're a Christian here, that probably seems quite obvious to us. You've probably been learning about that for years. And I imagine even if you aren't a Christian, you probably knew that that's what Christians believe. Christians are sort of famous for believing in a God. It's not too surprising. But I guess in the context of our world, with many different ideas, different theories and beliefs out there, well, it can be easy for us to listen to the plethora of voices which will tell us something different and will forget this foundational truth. Because at times, what they say and what this passage says can be radically different. For example, well, there'll be some who say there isn't a God. Instead, all that's ever existed is what we can see. It's matter, it's stuff. That's the only world that exists. There's no room for God. Or others might say, there's not just one God. There's a whole host of them. There are many of them. Well, both of those are radically different to what the Bible says. And in a world of different voices, we need to listen to God's own voice and remind ourselves the view that the Bible clearly teaches us. That right away, even in the first four words, the Bible tells us that there is a God. And this verse doesn't just say that there is a God, but it also tells us something about God. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. Well, that means that God's always existed. He's been there from the beginning. So while there's been a time where nothing that we can see right now existed, well, there has never been a time where God did not exist. God is the eternal God. Now, as I say that, we're probably thinking, well, this is still rather obvious. Christians, of course, believe in eternal God. And whilst this might be fundamental and foundational, I pray that as we reflect on this truth of who God is from this verse, that it will help us to have confidence in everything else we see and read in the Bible. Because we need to know that God alone is eternal and have confidence in this when we hear otherwise. For if we lose sight of God as the eternal God well, then this is going to alter what we believe about the gospel or other parts of the Bible. Let's imagine that there was no God, or if God just were a part of this creation. Well, then could we confidently rely on all the promises he's made to us? Could we put our hope and our trust in them when everything else is telling us otherwise, if God weren't the eternal God? If our view of God gets diminished, when over time our trust and our dependence on him will be diminished too, we can't rely 
on a small God. Now, this truth has lots of different implications for us today. But let's just have a brief think about a few other implications for us today. Firstly, we need to understand this because it allows us to realize our place before God. Because this ought to humble us. Because if we came here tonight thinking that we're at the center of the universe and that the world revolves around us, well, this passage is going to prove us wrong. It reminds us how small we are compared to the eternal God. No matter how impressive you might be, none of us can compare to an eternal God. None of us were there in the beginning. We are just part of his created order. God is so much bigger than us. The Bible puts that front and center in this first sentence to remind us who is really at the heart of everything. Whilst we will see later on in Genesis that humans have a privileged and important role in creation, even so, we are not the center of the universe. We're not at the heart of the story, but the eternal God is. Secondly, if this wasn't true, and instead of, there only, instead of there being a God, there was only matter and what we can see, only the stuff we can feel, well then that would mean that there was no inherent meaning. There was no meaning to existence, that our universe had nothing to undergird it, nothing to provide meaning to it. That in the face of suffering pain, and even death, or even in the face of joy and happiness and hope, that all these things are just random, the subject of chance, completely and utterly meaningless. If there's no God who defines it, no one who underpins it, well, then we cannot find inherent meaning in it. It's just circumstance. Whereas... Well, if there is a God, just like this verse tells us, well, that means that there can be meaning. And we're going to see that in our second point in just a moment, that there is a reason and there is a plan behind creation. Because behind everything else lies a person. We'll see this more clearly as we go on through Genesis. As we see that God is not just some mystic force, He's not the collection of impersonal processes, but he is a personal God with a character who is making himself known. Therefore, he puts a reason and meaning into the world. He has a plan for creation that because there's an eternal God, there can also be purpose in a painful world and hope in a bleak one. And he is able to provide that objective basis for creation as he was not only there in the beginning, but as we see in our second point, he is also the creator. Because God wasn't just a bystander watching creation unfurl in front of him at the beginning, 
He wasn't in the stands. He was there right at the heart of it, deeply involved. Verse 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. He's more than just an onlooker. He is the creator. And again, this second half of this verse, where it takes us right to the heart of what Christians fundamentally believe about the nature of the world, that the universe and all that is in it is not an accident, it's not here by chance, nor is it made from competing or opposing forces, but it was made entirely by God alone. This is something that the whole Bible teaches. If you were here last week, in the morning, when we were going through Hebrews, we read this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Which means that as Christians, we have faith in, we believe that God alone made everything that has ever been, and he made it all by his word, not as Hebrew 11 puts it, out of things that are visible. Which again, this is radically different to what the voices and the culture around us might be saying. We're often encouraged to believe that creation was just an act that happened by chance, It was just nothing more than an accident. There was no creator, no design, no intention behind it. Nothing more than the work of impersonal forces acting upon matter and just happened to create the world that we knew today, that we know today. But instead, we see in this verse that God created it all. He might have made mechanisms and processes and forces to help keep this world going, keep it ordered and structured. He's not a god of chaos. But it was not the process that willed the world into being, but God did alone. He alone is the creator. Which means that creation is the work of a personal God, not an impersonal force. That's something we'll see more of as we go through Genesis, that there is more to this world than just impersonal forces. We'll see that we have a moral world, not an amoral one. We'll see that we have a purposeful world, not a purposeless one. And just to underline it, we see in this verse that he created both the heavens and the earth. Well, this phrase is just making sure that we understand that God made it all. Because there's nothing that's not in either heaven or in earth. That includes everything. From the furthest star in the cosmos, right down to Blackford Hill, or the largest galaxy in the universe, all the way down to the smallest organism we can find on earth. Every animal, plant, terrain, natural wonder, anything we can find on earth, Anything that's ever been made, well, God made it all. And that includes us. Neither are we accidental, nor are we the result 
of just processes and impersonal forces. But we're here as part of God's creation. The Bible's view on creation is clear that it is not an accident. God chose to create it, and God did create it. And that is something that the whole Bible reiterates to us time and time again in a lot of different ways. So we need to keep being reminded of it. For example, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Well, that verse is clear. God alone made and preserves all. And if you're not a Christian here tonight and you wouldn't say you follow Jesus, well, I don't expect you just to take my word for it, that God exists, that he made you. But I would love to invite you to keep coming back as we read Genesis 1-4 to and we look at the foundations of this world and we see more of what God is like. I pray that these chapters will show you that the Christian view is not about ignoring reality in order to come up with some far-fetched understanding of how things operate, but instead it actually truly explains what this world is like and does so better than anything else can. That when we understand exactly who our maker is, well, this helps explain why the world is the way it is. But before we get into all of what Genesis 1-4 to has to say, let's again draw out some implications for us from the second half of this verse, that, if God, that God is the creator who purposely made the world. Well, firstly, much like with our first verse, first point, sorry, this ought to put us in the right place before God. As we're reminded of the power and authority God has as the one who made all things. It shows just how large a gap there is between us and him. He's the one that made everything. We're just part of creation. He's the craftsman. We're his handiwork. We don't get to define who God is, but God made and defines us. Now, whilst on the one hand that truth should humble us, as it reminds us that we're not at the centre, but God is, but it should also encourage us, because we're not here by accident, and God chose to make us as part of his creation. So we can be encouraged that life is not meaningless or purposeless, that when we come to understand who our creator is and who the God of this universe is, that we can find our real purpose beyond the superficial. We can find out what we were truly made for, to know him. Second implication, it helps us to see that God owns and rules over creation and that no one else does. He doesn't share it with other gods, nor does creation rule itself, but he alone 
is the king. That's something we we all know in principle, isn't it? The person who makes something has rights over what they make. It's like the artist. Will they paint a painting? Will they get to decide what to do with the painting? It's theirs. They rule over it. Well, so too with God and his creation. If God is the eternal creator of everything, then is he not also the one in charge? He is too the sovereign God. Which should remind us that he's not one to take lightly. Because even in this first verse, we see just how powerful he is and that he owns everything in this world. We can often forget this, can't we, as Christians, in the way we relate to God? And we do forget it in the whole world, as we see. Some will, we see in the media will speak about how they plan to argue with God when they see him, because they don't like how he runs the universe, and they've got a few suggestions about how to do it a bit better than him. Well, they don't realize how much bigger God is than them. And they need to read this verse to help put themselves in perspective. Because if you realize just how big God is, well, it helps us realize where we are too. It helps us not to think that you can argue with the eternal, the creator, and the sovereign God. But actually, we need to respond rightly to him. So if, if arguing with him isn't the right response... Well, then what should we do? Well, it's going to look like coming humbly towards him. And one of the ways that that is expressed, as we've heard about already tonight, and we see in many of the Psalms, is that we're encouraged to worship God just because he is our creator. We see this in Psalm 95, when it says, O come, let us worship and bow down, Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Or in the very next psalm, in Psalm 96, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Because God alone is the creator, And God alone is sovereign, but we worship him alone. We don't worship anything else. Now in our lives, we're often tempted to worship other things, aren't we? Maybe money, success, careers, maybe even ourselves. But if we understand who God is from Genesis 1-1, well, it should help us to worship him and not ourselves. It should lead us to, as Psalm 95 put it, to worship and bow down, to kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. When we realize who God is, that is what we do. So it's great that this evening we've been able to gather together to listen to God, been able to pray to Him, and we've been able to sing praises as we reflect on the fact that he is our creator. But Genesis 1.1 asks us, do we realize just how big and powerful 
and majestic and mighty the God we worship is. Because he is the eternal creator. And when we realize that, well, it should help us to worship him all the more. Because we know that God is a powerful and a mighty God who is personal as he reveals himself to us. We've seen it even in this first verse, but we see it across all of God's word that he's doing it because he wants to reveal himself to his creation. And nowhere more easily can that be seen than in the Lord Jesus himself when God himself came to dwell with man to make him known. To help us see this clearly, it would be great if you could turn up Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. You'll find it on page 983 of the Church Bibles. And in these verses, we're going to see how Jesus reveals to us the invisible God. He reveals to us the God of Genesis 1.1. And we're going to see why in light of this verse we have all the more reason to rejoice for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We see in these verses that Jesus too was there at creation, that everything was made through him, and that everything that was made through him was also for him, that he also rules over all these things that he helped create. Well, it's therefore no surprise that when Jesus came to earth, he had the power to still the seas, to calm the storm, to turn water into wine, to feed the thousands. Because he is the eternal creator God. He's the one that made everything and rules over it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God we saw in verse 15. And we can physically see all the invisible attributes of God clearly on display in the Lord Jesus, including the very attributes we've read about in Genesis 1.1. But we also read in verse 20 why Jesus came. It reads, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. As when Jesus came, well, he didn't find the world responding to him as the image of the invisible God. 
Although they were literally stood with the Genesis 1-1 God, they did not respond to him rightly. People rejected him. They didn't worship him. Humanity slandered him. They didn't bow down to him. The rulers put him to death. They didn't kneel before him. And we'll see in Genesis 3-4 to why humanity's response was so completely wrong. But it is clear, even if we just look at the world today, that the way that God is represented in Genesis 1-1, the way he's revealed to us, and the way that the world thinks about him today are diametrically opposed. And therefore, the way that we treat God is not the way we ought. The implication of verse 20 is that we're all at war with God, unreconciled with him because of our sin. Yet Jesus came showing us God's nature, including here his willingness to go to the cross and to die. He was willing to face the punishment of death on our behalf in order to reconcile humans with God in order to bring peace with God. Which is pretty staggering when we stop and think about it, isn't it? The eternal creator of all things, the person that made each one of us in this room, who made everything we've ever seen, we've ever touched, we've ever smelt, anything that's ever existed, the one who did all of that, was the same person who came into the world to shed his blood on a cross so that we might not face the punishment for our sin and that we might be reconciled with God. It's staggering that he would come in to restore his creation like that. And as I said, we will, we will get a bit more as to why there's this mismatch later. But it's helpful for us to acknowledge here that what we see in Genesis 1.1, and how we treat God are so opposed, which is why we do need to read this verse and be struck by who God is and how powerful he is. That somehow, the eternal and sovereign creator of all things is also a gracious God willing to save sinful people like us. And what a joy it is to have a God like that. We're going to have a chance to, to do as we've said we're going to do all evening and sing because God tells us to, because he's the creator. And in our final song, we're going to, as we reflect on God from Genesis 1-1, we're going to sing these words. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hand hath made. And then later on, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. How great thou art. God is the eternal creator of all things. How great thou art. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the eternal creator of the whole world. 
We thank you that you have shown us and revealed to us who you are and that we can know you. And we thank you for Jesus being willing to die on our behalf, even though he was our creator and king. We pray you'd help us to remember just how majestic and awesome you are in all we do. Amen.